Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. Hello. Oh, hey, uh, Damon, John. Yes. Hey, this is James Altucher. Hey, what's happening? Nothing much. How are you doing? I am great. I am so excited to talk to you about your book, so I'm just going to start. I'm going to get right into it and, and, and go for it. Damon, John, welcome to the James Altucher Show. How are you doing today? I am great, James. Thank you for having me. So, Damon, I'm so excited about your book, The Power of Broke. I actually like the title by itself, The Power of Broke, but you've got a hefty subtitle as well, How Empty Pockets, a Tight Budget, and a Hunger for Success Can Become Your Greatest Competitive Advantage. So did you, did the publisher make you put on that subtitle, by the way? No, I actually put the subtitle on because I just didn't want the people who uh, who look at and go, the power broke. Oh, I guess Damon was broke one day and he's telling me his story. So I didn't want them to, to, to think it was about me and not know that it was really about them. Right, because I did read your earlier memoir where you get into your whole story about how you were broke on essentially, you know, selling the, the wool caps on the streets of Queens and you know, with just $40 to begin with. So, so it was your story a little bit, but you expanded it by interviewing all of these other uh, people who had not similar stories, but similar kind of uh, grit and hustle. Right, absolutely. So I didn't want people to think that this book was purely like maybe I had the, the magic sauce or the secret bullet and how to obtain some level of success in life. And I went out there and I went and found some of the people that I truly respect in the world, such as Rob Durdak, uh, Steve Aoki, um, Gigi Butler, the queen of cupcakes, and uh, uh, Kevin Plank, the uh, owner of Under Armour, and, and, and try to basically find the common thread between all of us that were broke and that we applied something to what we were doing when we were broke, and then we still apply it today, even at whatever level of success we may have. So so there's a couple of different angles I want to get at. One is I do actually want to hear your sort of origin story. You know, every superhero has their origin, and that did lead you to kind of the the ideas in this book. But, but even more interesting to me um, was the time you started a record label, which really kind of hit home for you why you needed to have that feeling of like 
broke and hustle in the streets again. Um, can you tell us that story of you starting a record label? Sure. So this is this is one of the several times where you know I had the resources in regards to staff, capital, uh, you know, a name, you know, and everything, distribution, and I made my biggest mistakes, which cost me the biggest. So right around two thousand one, um, you know. Fubu as a record label, we're a, uh, as a clothing line, we're a lifestyle, and we decided to put out and create a record label. Uh, don't don't worry about it. I wasn't singing, rapping, and dancing <laughs> myself, so I don't want I don't want to scare you. But um, we already had really great relationships with music artists. We were basically dressing everybody in their videos, and even before that, people would say, "Please, why don't you create my image for me?" So we we decided to create a a, a record label called FB Entertainment, and we came out with a an album called the Good Life album. Now, the Good Life album uh, had all the stars that we can ever ask for on it, from um, LL Cool J to Ludacris and all the way up and down. And we released a couple of uh, different um, singles on the album. When we turned around, we spent about $3 million uh, you know, creating this record, creating the videos and everything else around it. But at the end of the day, if we were looking at sales alone, we probably sold about $1.2 million of record sales. And we were in this to be in the music business, but also enhance the lifestyle we had. And the mistakes that I learned was the fact that we thought we can do it ourselves and we took shortcuts and we decided to spend money on more advertising, more glossier videos, uh, you know, uh, a big shiny office with people to come up and see and, 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 and buy all of what we thought were the best. But we didn't know what we were doing and we didn't exercise the power of broke because we could have still gotten all those artists to record. We couldn't gotten we could have gotten all that distribution, but we thought money was going to shorten our learning curve. And what it did is really it cost us because we never came out with a second album after that. You know, it seems like with all those artists, you should have sold more than $1 million or $1.2 million worth of albums. Yeah, you would have thought so as well because, you know, you thought that you, you put all the best things in place and you purchased everything. But the reality of, uh, you know, the reality of products are you're never going to create anything new in this world. You're going to create just a new form of delivery. And this is another song like every other artist can make. But we never built up the following. And we didn't build up the following because we didn't know the kids that were buying the music. We knew the kids that were buying clothes, but they didn't respect us for selling music. And we couldn't earn their respect because we never went through the maze. We only got to the part of eating the cheese, right? And we basically never built that following. And that is the most important thing about running a business, creating a following, or even having a relationship, creating this level of trust with that person you're with or that person you're selling to or that person you're delivering something to. And if you don't have that, I don't care how much money you have, you can't buy your way into it. It's short-lived. You know, that's really interesting. So you're saying the key for many businesses is building the following. You know, that's particularly true for consumer goods businesses, say, you know, not necessarily. But, you know, maybe you could say that's true for any business, because now in a world where you can, um, you know, make videos or post articles on many different topics and many different media, uh, you can you can build a following and then sell into that following of people who are reading you or who are who are paying attention to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the old days of making and they will come are no longer there because of transparency. So you look at people who are living room stars. I mean, there are people like, uh, you know, somebody I interviewed in the book, Acacia Brenly. I mean, this girl is what they attribute to be the selfie girl. She probably on all her platforms, Twitter, Snapchat, Facebook, whatever the case is, has 14 million, 15 million people following her. So a few now, people pay attention to her. 
Yeah, people pay attention to her. 14, 15 million people pay attention to her. Now, you may look at somebody like me or let's let's say somebody who's on a public uh, station like a Kim Kardashian, right? She's on a, a public network. It, it, let's say 40 million people follow her. Well, you know, 10 million maybe girls who love her to death. Another 10 million maybe women who just love to hate her. Another 20 million maybe guys who are really attracted to how Kim looks, right? And that's because she's on, a, on, on, a, on this type of base. But when you look at somebody like Acacia, who really doesn't have the public platform as we know, such as a television show, and you have 15 million people following her, you know, 90% of those people are following her purely because they're seeking her out and other people are sharing that this person is a person of relevance and this person enhances their life. She creates a following. She's actually more valuable than a person of Kim Kardashian of uh, that sense in regards to converting their followers. People so how, how are watching she... Kim just to to watch half the time. How did she get up to 15 million followers? Well, she's in the book and she gets up to 15 million followers because it's it's an odd story. She was a she was a child who was bullied in school and all the kids, you know, kind of basically made fun of her, didn't want to hang out with her and when it wasn't popular, she was going on to platforms. She was taking pictures of herself because she wanted to have some confidence of herself and just pictures of her face. This girl's not a girl who goes and shows a bunch of skin or wears, you know, really questionable clothing or, or curses or anything like that. And then people started hating what she was doing. And then people started saying, you know what? I know why you're doing this. And they started following her. And she actually is one of the forefront leaders of what we call today the selfie. And oddly enough, I learned from her, out of all the people who started talking negative about her, she never responded to one negative comment. And after that, more people came to follow her because they said, you know what? You don't fight negativity with negativity. You just totally ignore it. I'm a little too immature to do that. I'm going to respond to a couple of negative people. <laughs> well, I, I see you do that a lot on uh, Shark Tank, so <laughs> you, you certainly teach us how to do it. So, so you know, it's interesting. Your, your, your book and the themes in it remind me – I mean, we're we're similar age, and in the mid '90s, I was working a full time job, but on the side, I, and I was dead broke other than this job. And on the side, I started building websites for record labels. So I did like Steve Rifkin's Loud Records, I did Bad right. Boy Records, I did Interscope. And your story about the record label reminds me in reverse of Steve Rifkin's uh, Loud Records because he then started SRC, where he was trying to take the artists and using that to build, help other companies build their brands instead of using brands to build the artists or vice versa. Well, let's, let's look at Steve from, from even earlier then. Let's look at, I mean, he's the guy who, you know, he didn't go after the big television commercials and tours. He started the street teams. Right, right. He That's found, what, yeah. I did the website for SRC, his whole street team company. Yeah, so think about that. He found a whole bunch of guys who wants to go hang out at clubs anyway and talk to girls, right, and listen to great music. And he said, here's a bunch of flyers. Right. And, 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 and here's a couple of dollars. Why don't you go out there? And he used that. I mean, that's the whole theory of uh, the power broke. It's being able to understand how to leverage your assets in your your relationship. So everybody talks about OPM. I need OPM to start a business. Well, OPM, Jay Abraham so eloquently uh, taught me, is not other people's money. OPM, when you don't have anything, you go OPM is other people's marketing, other people's memberships, other people's manufacturing. Manpower, I love that. Mistakes. You can always make a profit of OPM, and it doesn't have to be other people's money. Oh man, I'm gonna have to steal that, like when I give a talk or something. <laughs> of course, absolutely. So let me let's reel it back because I think um, your story also is like kind of the 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 you know defines the power of broke very well as well. Like you, just tell me about the first wool caps you sold. 
Well, you know, my story is that, um, you know, basically in the early 80s, there was this new what we call a disruptive technology today. It was called hip hop. It was coming around and everybody was laughing at it. But to me and to many of the kids that love hip hop, such as obviously you now putting together those sites, this was our form of the street communication of kids from all around the country and all around the world talking about their hopes and their, their desires, their challenges, their dreams. And we started to communicate through this music. And I and there was a life a, a lifestyle that came with it, a way to dress, walk, and talk. And we started to buy all these brands that weren't really designed for us. I didn't need a $700 uh, ski coat with Gore-Tex in it to wear it in the street because I love the colors. I needed a $200 colorful coat. <laughs> and uh, when a lot of the, the designers out there at the time, they really just wanted to shut away from the market for whatever their reasons were. We don't like hip-hop. We don't like inner city kids. We don't like rappers. We don't like black people. We don't like Latinos. Whatever their case was. But I started to feel insulted. You know, I was a hardworking guy. You know, I was working at Red Lobster. I was working two jobs, actually. And I started to hear rumors. Uh, uh, and But then I did actually see an article where it said Timberland said, we don't make our clothes for drug dealers. Oh, my God. And do you remember that? I, I don't remember that, but that's that's striking that they would say that. Well, of course. I mean, but you know what? They weren't op- they, they were operating from 30,000 feet in the air. And, you know, if you know anything about business, business is 80-20. And if 20 percent of your customers, 80 percent of your business, but you sell the best boot in the world. Well, if you're selling to a construction worker, he only has to buy a new pair of Timberland once every two years. But if you're selling to a kid like me at that time where I was what you would call today a sneakerhead, I needed every single color, and if I, a boot got scuffed, I'd have to throw it away. I was buying three new pair of Timbaland a month, <laughs> and you just called me a drug dealer, and I was a hardworking guy So in Red Lobster. So what did I do? I, I, I started to look at these videos, and I saw this hat. I saw a crew named De La So wearing, and it was this little wool hat, and I said, I got to go find one. I couldn't find one anywhere in Queens. I finally found one uptown Manhattan. I, I, I remember that cover, uh, the album cover, Three Feet High and Rising, where they're wearing the wool hats. Absolutely. Five Five Soul was making it, a company in Five Five Soul, and I finally find one in Manhattan. I come home, show my mother. I said, Ma, I spent $6 in gas, $900 in tolls, and, four, <laughs> and $20 on this hat. <laughs> and she looks at me and says, I'm crazy. And then she said, Damon. I can show you how to sew that hat, and now you can get a bunch of them for $40. Go get two 20s, go to the store, and buy $40 worth of fabric. I buy the fabric. I come home. She shows me how to sew those hats. Now I have a whole bunch of hats and one head, right? So I remember like it was yesterday. It was Good Friday, uh, 1989, 3.30 in the afternoon, and it was 37 degrees outside, and I stood outside the Coliseum Mall. A mall in Jamaica, Queens is pretty popular. And just shivering with a bag of hats. And I sold $800 worth of hats in an hour. Wait, so how, how old were you right then? Uh, I was 18. Man, so you you were, for me, I, I was about 18 then as well. No, actually, I was a tiny bit older. But uh, that would have been, I would have been a rich man with $800. Uh, yeah. So, you know, so how did you feel like that moment, like this entrepreneurship fire just igniting inside of you? I think I think it's like a lot of us when we we learn that first day we make a sale or something. I was I was counting eight hundred dollars of something I made with my own hands and I sold within a couple of hours and I said there was nobody in my way. I didn't have to buy this from somebody who will never let me buy it again. I didn't have to look to a store to hopefully beg them to get it. And I made it and I was in control of my destiny. And the longer I would stay out there, the more money I was going to make. And it just opened my eyes that day. And so did you like the next day buy fabric again? So not 100 wool caps and, and keep going or what happened next? No, the next hour I went and bought more fabric. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went home and I stayed up all night and I did it again and again and again. Now, don't get me wrong. 
here's what the power broke taught me. The power broke taught me that when I raised the price on the hats, I wouldn't sell as much. Or if I came out the wrong day, I wouldn't sell as much. Or when I went up and tried to do that in uptown Manhattan, you know what? They didn't want the wool one. They want it made out of silk. And when I tried to do it in Brooklyn, they didn't like those hats at all because they liked the scully caps. But if I would have sat there and I would have purchased, uh, you know, something or a sales team to go buy it, the sales team is not going to tell me why it didn't work. The sales team is just going to tell me something about why my product is not good enough. And I would have never got that knowledge. So so this was in, in a weird way. I mean, now that all companies do sort of A-B testing on their products, but you were doing it right there kind of in real time. I was doing it in real time. I was doing it every single minute, and I, and I like to see it. You know, I like to see what happened. But, you know, the, the, to, to, to take the story fast forward, you know, LL Cool J lived in our neighborhood. I, I, I didn't really know him that well, but everybody started talking about these hats they were wearing around, you know, the neighborhood. LL Cool J is a, obviously a, a, an amazing guy, and he's traveling the world. But when he comes back to the hood to know what's going on and get the pulse of the city, he started to say, what's going on with these hats? So then I finally was able to go over to him and I asked him, could he wear it and this and that. And we created a relationship. Obviously, I stalked the guy for quite some time. We created a relationship and this guy started to wear my hats and wear my clothes and stuff like the Hey Lover video and things of that nature. If I, if I had $500,000 to take out loans with, you know what I would have done? I would have walked over to LL Cool J and I would ask him, could he wear it? Uh, for, you know, can we wear it for a year? And then I would have had to go and buy ads to place it in. That would have cost me $2.5 million by the right, time so, I was done. So having money would have actually hurt your business. It would have killed me. I would have taken out I would have taken out a loan for as much as I possibly could. And every single time I had an injection or, or of capital, I would have looked to somebody else to be able to wear it instead of just beg him, make sure everybody <laughs> around him was wearing it who loved it and make him feel like he was the outsider. So, so how did you kind of like ultimately? What was the moment where he said, "Yes, I'll start wearing this"? Like, how did it was it was it a philosophical moment where he realized what you were doing and how it connected to his music, or like what 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 did it? What brought him over the top? The moment was when I kept coming by his house and he would say, "I like it" or "I don't like it." He'd wear a piece here and there, but then he goes out and people there was always a movement and a following, and people would say. Man, I you you wearing the Fubu stuff too? Yeah, I have some of it. This stuff is great. This stuff is great. And then we got to the point where I said, I need you to to. Can you be a spokesperson? Can you take a picture for me so I can do something with it? And he thought about it for a while, and he said, You know what? I'm only here because I've created movements where these kids follow me, and these kids respect what I'm doing, and I and I have to pay it forward. And you guys are not gonna stop. You guys have a movement. I like the stuff. All right, I'm going to do it for free. And if you ever get anywhere, you take care of me. Well, it, it's it's so funny because then he's, I mean, in one of his videos, he says, FUBU for us, by us. You know, he starts, he, he basically, you know, you and him created this slogan, which really, you know, moved a, a generation of kids. No, well, better yet, he didn't say it in his video. You know, he said it at, he said it when the gap sit said, I want to try to buy into the hip-hop community. And they tried to take a shortcut. Instead of, you know, getting a, a SRC or, you know, or people who are knowledgeable about this market, you know, or getting guys like you to work with them and say, yo, this is how you go about it. They said, no, let's just hire a bunch of rappers and put some rap uh, commercials together. So they hired LL Cool J. He didn't really like the way that he felt that they spoke to him. He felt that they were very, they, they weren't appreciative about our culture. And he put in a Gap ad for us, by us, on the low. And the Gap ended up spending $30 million airing a FUBU ad. 
So this is, again, like you, the philosophy of reaching out to your community, your following, um, and of course, finding like a, a leader in the community like LL Cool J to best spread that message. And then he's able to leverage these huge brands like The Gap to kind of even uh, leverage it th- further. They spend $30 million on the commercial, which is, again, money. OPM, you, yeah. other people's marketing. So, so far, let me just tell you what I have so far. So I have like kind of community, uh, you know, slash your following that you're reaching out to. You're testing. You're constantly testing on the, on the street. You you built your network like by contacting guys like LL Cool J, who then used his network and so on. And then OPM, other people's money, other people's mistakes, other people's every M you could think of. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting the, 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 the rhythm here. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want people to think that we should start off with LL Cool J. Two years before LL Cool J, we were selling to whoever the, or giving or talking to whoever the the influencer was in the community. And there's there there's hundreds of them. That's why you can look today at someone like an Acacia or a Rob, a Rob Durdak or people like that who have millions of people that follow them because the community leaders don't have to be this big star. They have to just be the people that people respect in the market. You know, this is going to be a weird analogy, but it sort of reminds me that of, you know, there was this one period in the mid to late 70s where Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, Paul, and all these guys who went off to start these huge computer companies were all hanging out together, I guess, in... San Francisco or Silicon Valley and they at this thing called the Homebrew Club where they would just make these almost model computers and they would play around and from that beginning started the whole computer revolution and essentially you were part of the same thing but in Queens with guys like LL Cool J, Russell Simmons, Run DMC, everybody kind of coming out and, and in this you know hip hop movement out of this one area who were all around the same age and built huge businesses out of it. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, I was on a tour, you know, I was on one of the first tours, uh, you know, uh, I think it was 1984. And I, there was uh, three of us on that tour, three kids, I, you know, well, four of us. I said I was going to be the biggest clothing guy in the world. Another guy said he's going to be the biggest DJ. Another guy said he was going to be hopefully do videos or graffiti. And another guy said he's going to be the biggest drug dealer. We're all 15 years old. Who those guys end up being? Well, me, you know, I, I ended up doing okay. The kid who was going to be the biggest graffiti artist was Hype Williams, the famed director. Sure. The other kid who said he was going to be the biggest DJ is Irv Gotti, uh, who has a murder ink. And the other guy who said he was going to be the biggest drug dealer ended up becoming the biggest drug dealer. <laughs> and Irv Gotti and Hype Williams wrote a movie about him called Belly, and he's still in jail. But at the end of the day, we all went after what we were going to be because this tide was rising in hip-hop. And... At the same time in our business, all of us were the same. When we went to Manhattan, we were all the same people. It was Damon Dash, uh, Steve, uh, Steve Rifkin, and uh, you know the other Steve. What's oh jeez, oh what's the other guy, Steve? I don't you know. What I'm talking I about. don't remember. It's a long time. Oh god, <laughs> he did the same thing in America. Anyway, um, but anyway, that's how it all happened. It was a really special time when we all were a certain age, just like you just said about the the. The big juggernauts in uh, um, technology. So, so what if you didn't grow up there, and you know you're, you know, I think a lot of people might hear this and say, "Well, oh, I got born at the wrong time. I'm in the wrong town. Um, I don't relate to the people around me." Well, what if, what if you're 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 hungry and you've got the, the you want to hustle and you've got this power of broke, but you don't know what to do with it. You don't know what community to connect to. What would be like the first steps? Well, I mean, the first step is obviously, well, first of all, and that's, let, let me let me back up. The reason why when I wrote the book, I didn't just talk about myself and I wanted to make sure that I put 
a lot of different people in there. Uh, you want to come up in a certain community, you have to resonate with the community. Now, I'll give you an example. Steve Ioki in the book, everybody says, well, his dad had so much money. That was actually a problem for Steve. Steve, when he would go to the, the inner city and try to talk about, I'm going to be a DJ and everything else, they would say, you got money, get the hell out of here. And he would have to say, no, I, it's not about my money because he didn't have any. His father wouldn't give him any because his father said, you're hanging out with those kids in the street. You better come work for me or I'm not giving you a dime. So Steve came from a different part. Well, you look at Kevin Plank, who's doing $4 billion now a year, and they said you could never, uh, never take on Nike, Reebok, and Adidas, and now he has Under Armour. He came from the streets of Baltimore, and he, out, he went out there and hustled with one little shirt. He tells in my book how he didn't even have mu enough money to go past the toll where they had to basically give him a ticket for not being able to pay the toll. So how did he, or, how did he get going then? What what? So he's using the power of broke. What did he do? He basically took this shirt that he found, this fabric, and he went and put it on every player that he could because when he would go into the locker room, these guys were wearing this uh, a sweatshirt that was drenched and felt like 30 pounds of water because it was it was drenched. So he went and found uh, somebody to make a shirt on 33rd Street in Manhattan and bought 10, mm. then bought 100, then bought 300, then took out a loan, then lost all his money, then did it again. And not a big loan, a small loan, because all entrepreneurs that are successful take affordable next steps. They don't go and mortgage the entire farm on the first bet they have. So, and also, I like how um, they mitigate risk, too. So, because they're playing um, in, in, they start off in a small space, you know, 10 shirts, then 100 shirts, and so on, they, they, they don't want to take risks on those 10 shirts, on those 100 shirts, where they're laying out, initially at least, their own personal money. Like, you needed to sell those 80 wool caps initially. That's right, because when you want to make your mistakes small because, you, God forbid, you take out a $200,000 loan and you bet it all on one thing. What's going to happen? First of all, you have this $200,000 Frankenstein on your back. Your credit's ruined for seven years. The people that invested in you or helped you, you're not, they're not even talking to you anymore. And you lost your taste for the business, and you probably damn near have cancer because you're so stressed of what you did. So let me ask you about that, though. You and your mom took out a $100,000 mortgage on a house, that's pretty scary, right? When you were started starting to ramp up. How did you mitigate risk then? Well, because we started in 89. I started in 89. I closed FUBU three times up until 92 because I ran out of money. Wow. But it was only $2,000 at a pop. And then when I finally took out that loan, it was after, it was at 90, in 1995 when I went to the magic show and I came back with $300,000 in orders because I had created such a following. So that risk was mitigated by going, all right, I have $300,000 in orders. I take out a $100,000 loan on my house. That's all my house was worth. I didn't have any other money in the house, uh, you know, but it was fully paid off. But if I sell the $300,000 of clothing, I put the $100,000 back into the house. So, so you didn't need to raise any money. You just kind of kept building up, building up. Uh, you know, eventually you, built, you brought in investment partners, but they like moved into your house with you. Absolutely. So I still needed, uh, you know, other people's manpower because you want to bring on people that you're going to work with at the early stages. Because if you operate with the power of broke, unlike people just looking for another check, we all have employees, right, or people we work with, and they're going to do whatever they need to do to get that other check out of you. When you're operating with a like-minded team who have the same goals in mind and they're not getting paid, you're now displaying the character of these individuals. You're knowing who's going to work more. You're knowing who's going to jump ship. You're knowing who's going to make excuses. And when you don't cloud it with money, 
and you do it with the power of broke. It's a mentality. Remember, you know, being broke is temporary. Poverty of the mind is permanent. So you have to be just act like it's power broke. And you know what? I use power broke mentality now more than ever before. In what way? Like what way did you use it today or yesterday? Ah, uh, yesterday, uh, today. You know, listen. I use it all every every other week with another Shark Tank company. I don't say, right. well, you listen, take the two hundred thousand dollars just run off. I go, how much are you getting the goods for? Well, why don't we go on and do? Why don't we take out some ads on Facebook for two hundred dollars here? Let's let's take out five different ads with totally different copy, and we're going to spend two hundred dollars on each one of the ads. Now, when all five of the ads come back. If ad number one gets seven responses, ad number three gets two responses, ad number five gets 19 responses, we're going to go and start doing ad number 19 again and again and again. And we're going to then take that and see how that works. And then we're going to go into another social media platform and see how that works. And then we're going to go and open a kiosk for one month in the mall for $5,000 instead of a store for $200,000. And we're going to see how it's going to sell there. And we're going to keep doing that. We do that. Every day, all day. And how did I do it today? How do I did, did it? How do I do it exactly today? With how I'm calling up to you and I'm asking, hey, can I get on your podcast? Well, hey. and, I, and I really appreciate that too. So let me ask you, Steve Ioki, because that that story still fascinates me as well. Like he basically was taking on tiny hundred dollar gigs, and now what does he make? Like thirty million a year DJing. Makes thirty million a year DJing, and everybody will say, well, that's not hard. That is hard because you know what. If everybody in the world can play a record, how hard is that, right? Because your competition is more than ever before. And so you look at a Steve Aoki, and this guy, this guy absolutely, you know, then he goes and starts caking people and, and, and life rafts, you know, in the crowd and jumping, and he's creating more and more and a more, fo- a more following. If you say, why don't you go do a Steve Aoki jump, people know what that is immediately. And so how did he kind of um, parlay those small gigs into, you know, huge success? Well, he went out and then he started going and throwing basically almost rent parties. Then he started printing his own records and his own tapes and he started going out of his trunk. It's the same as, you know, we look at cash money, the same story, the sto- same story. You're going to find this in every single aspect of life. I, I interviewed him there, Mark Burnett. I mean, the guy who is the most uh, uh, successful reality producer in the world. He started out as a t-shirt tank. guy, too. Huh? He started out as a t-shirt guy as well. Yeah, even before that, you know, the guy was a, a, a he was in the, the the British Special Forces, right? So you got a guy who's like a Navy SEAL, right? He comes over to America. You know what he first starts doing? No. He becomes a nanny. <laughs> Think I about that. that. You got I didn't a know brittle, that. British uh, Special Forces guy as your nanny. Then he starts to do T-shirts on Venice Beach, and then he starts to go out there and he starts to try to uh, 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 access some content to sell it. And then go out and start reality show. And I remember somebody told me the story uh, over at ABC that the first day they saw him uh, shoot a reality show, he came with eight cameras. Before that, it was just one little camera and everybody was treating it like a demo tape. You know what I mean? And he stepped up his game. So huh. he, 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 he always learned to shift. And now he's the most powerful guy in regards to reality television. So that learning to shift is interesting, going from, you know, nanny to to T-shirts to reality. Like, I think that's a key skill to learn. People always think about, oh, I have to find my one passion. But that might not be the case. There might not be one passion. Absolutely. What is your, you, you know what, the first person we have to convince is ourselves. What is your passion? There are some people who can, 
who who love to concentrate on one business and you look at somebody like a Richard Branson who will clearly say, I have 300 businesses because I got bored of every business fairly quickly. Right. But the but the 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 love and the passion he has is, is something about the actual challenge of the business. People always think you need money to make money. If you need money to make money, then why is over 65 percent of the Inc. top 1000 or the Forbes 1000 people who came from nothing? They were all broke. If you needed money to make money, that means the whole Forbes list and Inc. list would just be people who inherited money. Right. So so. Uh, another story from your book, Gigi Butler, Cupcake Queen. Absolutely. Gigi Butler, the Cupcake Queen. This woman was out there, you know, I think she was cleaning, was it, she was cleaning toilets, I believe, at the time. Um, and she goes out there, you know, and, and she opens one location, and now she has, she's like the Cupcake Queen. You know, Gigi Butler has, I think, uh, uh, she's doing over $35 million in annual sales. And this was a woman that was just cleaning homes every single day, just like many of our hardworking men and women out there in the world. So she didn't have any access to celebrities or a famous last name. She just had a drive, a passion, and she sold it one cupcake at a time. And she took affordable, you know, affordable steps forward. And she went out there and zigged when everybody zagged. So I like that too, affordable steps forward as opposed to like having a little bit of success and then raising 20 million sort of Silicon Valley style right now. Absolutely. You know what? I, I, I remember a great, a great saying by Mike Tyson. He said, everybody has, a, everybody has a game plan until they get punched in the face, right? And you look at business uh, and business and, 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 and life are the same as fighting, you know, fighting, you know, as a contender. You're the contender and life is the champion. If you sit there and think that you're going to come out today and take out a, a great loan and fight Mike Tyson the first fight, then I think you need to warm up a little bit. Because by the time you get punched in the face a bunch of times, then you know how to take a hit. Then you know what to I do. I think you're dead then. <laughs> exactly. With, with my, even now, me versus Mike Tyson... I think I'd be dead, but yeah. Well, then you know, but you know, at that point, you know what? You've learned enough to know how to act like you're sick that day of the fight and right. run. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> so so let me ask you then. When like it sounds when you're telling these stories, it makes me really excited, and it sounds very almost romantic and exciting. Oh, I'm gonna be broke and scrappy and build up and one cupcake at a time. But it's really painful, also. Like you said, you sold you you said you shut down Fubu, you know, three times in in three years. Like it's really painful to also land on your face and not know how you're going to get back up again. Like, how did you know you could get back up again? Well, I think that you bring up a good point that it's romantic the way I'm talking about it, but I do want to uh, really acknowledge that obviously resources give us some, a couple of things. It gives us, you know, it saves us, you know, in regards to having to take uh, the dangerous way home. It, it helps protect our families. It gives us a way to eat and good medical and things of that nature. So don't get me wrong. I'm not uh, glamorizing the aspect of those who have uh, are in a temporary situation and not having resources. Um, but what it does is it gives you basically the learning and the process and it makes you appreciate more what you've gone through. There are going to be plenty of times that we're going to have to stop the business and or what we're doing, but we can recover. And that's why I said that I had to close the business three times. But if I would have made one big purchase, I would have never recovered from it. And what I learned every time I closed the business or slowed the business down, other people call it failure. I won't call it failure. It's part of the process. And what I learned during part of that process was, do I want to start it back up? Is this something I miss? 
is this something other people miss? I can't. I started it back up every time that I closed it down because people kept calling me. The business was calling me. But we're not going to get an A on every single time that we uh, open a business. Prior to that, I was a van driver in Queens. I had a, a little livery service that I was doing for five years. I was working 18 hours a day, and I realized I was only working 18 hours a day to pay off the tickets on my van and the gas and the maintenance, so I wasn't making any money, but I learned that. And when I took that to Fool Boy, I started saying, if we're not making money, it's not worth doing anything. If we don't see a clear level of profit, it's not worth doing anything. So I took every single failure that I've had, and I brought it forward to hopefully one day that I would you know, find success. You know, it's kind of funny when you, when you bring it up that way of, of looking at your personal P&L. A lot of people live paycheck to paycheck, and it's because they have, let's say they view their jobs as, their, as a business instead of a job. Their business is really just breaking even because right. they're not making a profit enough to save. Uh, do you think that sort of indicates that more people should be trying this approach of, of essentially, um, you know, this power of broke approach, hustling, building up, you know, making your own kind of uh, profits out of what you do and your skills that you learn and so on? Absolutely. So you're, you're taking, you know, listen, you're supposed to look at yourself. Before you have any business, you're supposed to take inventory of yourself. Your assets are what feeds you. Your liabilities are what eats you. And assets and liabilities can be time, energy, education, friends, the location, your way of thinking. And you have to do that and take inventory of yourself. But if people really think about it, I don't care what they've ever done in their life. Has, has money ever been the end all uh, a solution to it? Have you gone and found a great guy or girl that the relationship was based on money? You took the girl out every single day. You bought her shoes as many times as you can. All of a sudden, when things go wrong, you don't have the money. Is there a relationship really there or was it based on money? I think I, oh. I think that happens to me every decade of my life. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. But but even let's look at education. You can buy an education at Yale. There's one way or another to get into Yale. It doesn't mean you're going to leave there smarter than you walked in if you don't show up. Right. You know, so it doesn't matter what at what time did money ever get us any kind of advancement unless we, you know, where I can't even think of the time that it, it, it was it was energy and effort and strategy before and the money came after. That's that's totally true. Money is like a byproduct of those things you just mentioned. So I totally believe that. So so let me let me ask you this. How did you get on Shark Tank? Because I want to tell you something. I get my kids every Shark Tank episode. I have two kids, 16 and 13, <laughs> two girls, and That's I'll great. pause it throughout the show and say, okay, who's going to who's gonna invest in this or who's going to try to invest in this or how much is the entrepreneur valuing as his company, you know, just to get them started with the math. And they, they always, they know when you're going to bet on something. If there's like something clothing related and you're looking a little friendly towards it, they, get a, they have a pretty good sense of when you're going to in, invest in something. You do a lot of consumer products, you know, things that you can relate to. Um, how did you get on Shark Tank? <laughs> well, uh, well, I'm glad that I'm glad that they. I, I'd um, rather they watch they Shark can... Tank than go to school, to be honest. <laughs> I know. I, I bet. Make sure they don't call any of the uh, new contestants to give them give them any of my telltales. They're oh. probably really good poker players. Oh, they're totally ready. If a contestant cries, forget <laughs> it. They know which of you guys are not investing, <laughs> and so on. Okay, we already know that's Barbara. But um, so, so you know, listen. I was, I was. Um, I think I was doing shows such as Donnie Joyce and things of that nature. And, and, you know, this goes back to the power of broke. You know, people wanted me to go out and write books 
in the past. I have two previous books, Display of Power and the, um, the Brand Within. And people wanted me to write books about uh, my cars and women and celebrities and all that stuff. And I said, I'm not doing that. I got to pay this thing forward. And I got to go out there and I got to talk about this thing called entrepreneurship because this thing is empowering and other people need to know that. And I did that right around 2004 when it wasn't necessarily the coolest and hippest thing to do. And I and I, and I got 10% of the money that I should have gotten for a book offer because I refused to do what these other people wanted me to do. Actually, but that was my first book. My second book, I put out myself because I just wanted to educate people. And then I started going on shows like CNBC, MSNBC, and Donnie Deutsch. And I started trying to go out and educate people. Well, all my friends and all those celebrities laughed at me. Why are you going out and doing this? I said, I'm paying it forward. Well, oh, damn, you should be on some big reality show. I don't want to do all that. But the big boys and girls are always watching us. Mark Burnett and Clay Newbill, the, the producers of Shark Tank, uh, was already they already have a show called Dragon's Den. It's number one in Japan, London, and Canada. They said, we want some guys on the show who know about branding, who, who have a couple of dollars, and who are smart. So they called me up and they said, hey, I want you to do the show. And I go, okay, well, I'll, I think I'll, I'll do it. I said, who else is going to be on it? They said, oh, well, look, talking to this guy, that guy, oh, this guy named Mark Cuban. I said, I said, now you just tell me some Hollywood crap. I said, Mark, Mark is on TV more than God, and that guy has a bad attitude. And why would he, why would he ever do something like Shark Tank? I said, but you know, it's a free trip to L.A. I'll come out there uh, you know, and hang out with a couple of my friends. We filmed the show. We don't think the show's ever going to last past season one. Mark uh, Cuban comes on season three, and there it goes. I mean, it's just history. And Shark Tank itself is almost like a, a startup. You know, it got moved around. It got turned down by four or five networks. It finally got to Mark Burnett. Then they put on a bunch of people that nobody knew. Nobody knew any of us besides Mark Cuban after season three. All the networks said, no, we want you to put on big celebrities. Mark Burnett said, no, because celebrities are great at what they're doing, but I don't believe they're going to – and the public doesn't believe that they're going to go and roll up their sleeves and get into a factory and start working. It's not going to happen, and the networks wanted to drop it. But he stuck to his guns, and that's what happened, and America said, this is real. And that's what happened. So, so what are some what what are the things you look for as a yes or a no when you're looking at you know Shark Tank contestants and and deciding whether to invest in their companies? The first thing I look at is the person. the The thing that is always more important than the number is the person. I look at the person. Am do I like this person? And that's why the power broke works because I don't care. You can you. Again, you're not going to make any new products in the world. You're just going to be someone who's going to have a different form of delivery. So I look at the person. Then I look at how many times has the person failed? Because I don't want to use my my I don't want this person to use my investment as tuition. I want this person to know that what they have done in the past works, it doesn't work, and how they're we're going to make some money together. Uh, then I look at is the business scalable? And I think that you brought up a very good point earlier. You know, when somebody is working to work to break even. Well, you know what? If you have a good company and you're doing uh, $500,000 a year in business, but you're only working three months out of it and you're putting $200,000 in your pocket, do you really want to take that business up to $3 million and you're going to have to work all 12 months of the year and you're going to have to split it in half and have to listen to me calling you every day saying, where's my damn money? Hmm. Which one is a better quality of life? So that's what I look at the scalability at the end of the day. And do, are there any particular industries you like or? Um, you know, not necessarily because, you know, every industry is changing and I'm finding success in industries that 
I never thought I would, which are food. Uh, some of the top companies I have now, uh, I have great partners with, uh, is Al Bubba Baker's Boneless Ribs and Three Jerks Jerky. Um, so I'm finding if you look at that, I go, it's really about the person because I go, I never wanted to be in that business, right? And then those businesses are doing great. But then you look at a business that I really hated being in is socks. <laughs> the, the damn sock business, I said to myself. I remember that one, I think. Yeah, Bomba socks. I have a million pairs of units in my uh, in my <laughs> warehouse of FUBU socks I can't sell. Why in the world would I buy another or invest in another sock company? But then these guys from Bombas, they're thinking outside the box. They start out with no money. They created this amazing sock, or they they and they has a social cause to it. They they give a pair away to the homeless shelter uh, because the biggest care is their feet, and they sell only online. Something that I've never done before in my life. And these guys are doing five, six, seven, ten million dollars, and it's a social cause. How they how they start selling online like that? They went out and they found this uh, the sock where it's, it's it has no seam in the toe, so people started to be attracted to it from a couple of different reasons. And this is how I said you take out the Facebook ads, a hundred dollars or ten dollars a piece. They found runners who love the sock and yoga people who love the sock because they can run. There's no seam in the toe, right? Then they found. Um, people who love the social cause because they understood that these are they're giving it away to uh, shelters and people in need. And then they found a third pocket of people who just love the design, very colorful. And I didn't know this. People, there's a lot of people who are like uh, sock collectors. They have like 200, 300 pair of socks. And, and, and that's the beautiful part. So these people, these guys found that and now they do collaborations with companies like The Gap, Come, you know, comes full circle, right? We're working with the Gap, and the Gap is now gonna, uh, you know, gonna give up to a million dollars worth of socks away, you know, for this collaboration over the last uh, Christmas season. So these guys found their niche, and again, they, they you know, you, they didn't need money; they needed to think outside the box and find that niche. So what was I don't what was your deal with them initially? I don't even remember the deal. It was three years ago. And, but you have like a percentage of the company and yeah. how, do you, how do you see yourself exiting a company like that? Will they sell to like a Nike or something or what will they do? They're, they're probably going to exit and they're going to sell. But again, I think that it's a, it's a longer ride. I think that when you have socks and you go naturally into underwear and things of that nature. But the beautiful thing about working with people who understand whether the power broke or it be agile and things outside the box is I don't need to ask them what the game plan is because they're going to give me the game plan. Hmm. You know, when you're an investor and you work with um, other companies, you work for the company just as much as the company works for you. And you're a true partner. So these guys, these guys, these these are the few guys that I can go to sleep at night, and I'm just waiting for them to call and tell me what more they need. I bring them some ideas, and don't get me wrong, some of them are like Damon, that's great. Some of them are like Damon, you old dog, this is not done like this anymore. And I learn from them as well. Well, so what's what's like your worst Shark Tank experience? So that's a great one. What's your worst experience with Shark Tank? My worst Shark Tank experience is it, there. There's a lot of them. Um, I'm not gonna call anything my worst. One of my lessons was a, uh, you know, I worked with an amazing uh, woman named Gayla Bentley. She had a uh, a company where she um, made designs and, and um, beautiful dresses for full figured women. And Barbara and I went in on the deal. We hooked Gayla up with a couple of designers here and there, um, and manufacturers, and. We haven't seen anything yet or heard from her. But, why, why, you haven't heard from her? Oh, we hear from her here and there. So I'm not going to say we haven't heard from her in the sense that she stole anything. I just think that the business just didn't blossom um, like we hoped it would. 
and maybe she just hopefully will hopefully I have hope that she'll come around 10 years later and say oh by the way I moved to Australia and I'm doing really well and here's your money but um those things happen and you yeah. know sometimes people are trying to figure it out while they're while they're not not around but for the most part, I don't even look at it as a negative. It, it just has made me sharper and smarter. What's the shark you like to most co-invest with? Like, who do you like? Who do you like to work with among the other sharks? Um, I like I like the last shark that I did a deal with. Okay, that's it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a diplomatic good way to say it. No, I'm not being diplomatic. I don't like working with those guys. Hmm. I don't like working with those bobos for various <laughs> reasons. You know, number one, they we all think we know it all. Right. Right. And then it gets convoluted because you get the the, um, you know, the entrepreneur gets a little confused. Do I listen to Damon or do I listen to Robert? Do I listen to who? Do I listen to that person? Right. And then, um, you know, you know, just egos get in the way and, and, and it's hard. It's, it, you know, these talks are busy. So I want to talk to my partner as much as I can. It's hard finding where Mark Cuban is today. <laughs> That's right, what, you don't so, have him on speed dial on the cell phone or anything. Yeah, I do. So we were both over at uh, CES yesterday. I said, "Hey, Mark, I got a panel going on at twelve. What are you doing?" He said, "Yeah, I got a panel going on at this time." And I said, "All right, no problem. So I'll catch up with you, man." During the rest of the day, he said, "I'm stacked." Then he didn't answer my text till like nineteen hours later. <laughs> so he's the first guy to blow me off for 2016. That's so funny because he's also he's actually very good at like responding to people in general. Yeah, but he doesn't respond to me because he knows I'm going to chase him down. But I, I, I truly do love and respect I respect those guys. I've learned so much from uh, from all the sharks. But um, the only, the best time I love to do a deal with them is not when I'm a shark. It's when I'm a catfish. When I when I when I know that it's a, a Robert or Mark Cuban deal and it's technology, and whether I raise the price up or you let me in to get a free ride, that's the best time ever that I love doing a deal when I'm getting a free ride in a place that they know way more than I do. Right. That, that, those are the best investments. Like if, if you can co-invest with someone, if you can basically stand next to the smartest person in the room in that particular area, uh, it's always a good thing. Nothing like being a, a buzzard on a gut wagon. Well, Damon John, um, your book, it's so many great stories. It's so exciting. Uh, and I really love the underlying philosophy, the power of broke. I think it's particularly important in this day and age where everyone thinks they can just quit their job and raise $20 million for an idea but you show how it's done. The power of broke, how empty pockets, a tight budget, and a hunger for success can become your greatest competitive advantage. Uh, best of luck on the book and on Shark Tank and on everything you're doing. And thanks so much for coming on the show. All right. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for everything you do as well. I mean, this, you know, you're really empowering a lot of people. And uh, make sure you, you don't, don't let your daughters, uh, you know, get a hold of any new contestants come on the show. <laughs> They're gonna, that's a great business for them. They're going to be Shark Tank coaches. <laughs> I know. Don't, don't do it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, David. All right. Bye. bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today. today can spend half their lives over 50. 
So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.